Well, here we are, midweek service, a discussion on being prepared for the coming of the Lord. And you're like the, uh, not to say that any of you who are not here tonight are unfaithful, because I know you are, you're home for various reasons, but here's, here in, if you're connected, you're part of the faithful bunch, if you will, who are saying, I want to I wanna know what it's going to take to be ready for the Lord's coming. Part of my uh, angst as a pastor, and maybe a sorrow as a pastor even, is the number of people who have not tuned in, who attend our church but have not tuned in to any of the Wednesday nights, and are not hearing this. Um, wow, you know, I just pray that somehow they, they can get the message. And of course, we've uh, we spent uh, quite a few weeks uh, on this subject. And tonight we're going to take a look uh, a little bit deeper. Uh, actually, I want to begin to um, move right on through the book of Revelation. We're going to start talking about the seven churches tonight. Um, but first, before we do that, let's, uh, let's do a, just a quick recap of where we're at so far. Remember that the focus of Revelation is Jesus Christ. The first five wor- words of the book in the first chapter is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yes, Revelation is very much an end times book. It may be the premier end times book in the Bible, but quite frankly, even though it may be the premier end times book in the Bible, the point isn't end times. The point is a revelation of Jesus Christ. So we need to keep the main thing the main thing, amen? And what is the main thing? A revelation of Jesus Christ. A lot of times when I go to pray for people in the hospital, and uh, I'll ask them if, if they know the Lord. Now, obviously, it's been a while since I've been able to go to a hospital and pray for someone. You all know that. But um, I will ask them if they know the Lord, and they'll say, no, many times I don't. And I said, well, you know what? Uh, there's something more important for me to pray about for you than your healing. Now, that may sound a little bit callous because they've asked me to come pray for their healing. But I'll say to them, before you can be healed, you need to have a revelation of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to pray that you have a revelation of who he is, and I'm going to pray that you have a revelation of your need for the Savior. Okay? And you should, do, you should take that kind of as a, uh, a hint for your own life when you're thinking about someone that you wish would accept Christ or a family member or whatever you need to remember that it happens because the Holy Spirit draws, woos that person in, okay? doesn't happen by, I mean, sometimes you and I could witness until our lips fall off our face, and they're still not going to accept Christ. When will they accept Christ? When they have a revelation of who Jesus is, and when they have a revelation of their need for a Savior. Because a lot of people will say, Oh, yeah, I know who Jesus is, but they don't have a revelation of their need for him as a Savior and Redeemer. It's one of the best things that you can pray for people. I think the Apostle Paul even said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, we don't need to get all deep in theology and have all kinds of Bible diplomas on our walls so we can impress people with all of our Bible knowledge. The best thing you can do is to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified and what that means. But then again, you have to pray for the person to get a revelation of that. You've often heard me pray, Lord, by your great Holy Spirit, open our 
open our ears to hear. And Lord, by your great Holy Spirit, open our minds to understand. And by your great Holy Spirit, open our hearts to receive. Even in the sharing of the word, I'll often pray for pray that over the congregation because I know it's just information without the anointing of the Holy Ghost. Okay? Um, so that was the first thing, that the main thing is Jesus Christ. The second thing was that the book was, was not written to the world. It was not written to sinners, per se. It was written to the bondservants of Jesus Christ. That clearly says that in the very first few uh, words of the Scripture. <clears throat> and so, in even Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul said, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God. So, and, and remember this, this is a great definition of the word bondservant. It's a slave by choice. A slave by choice. Now, there was another definition that was attached to that. I thought it was very cool. It said, devoted to another to the disregard of one's own interest. Boy, that, that don't sound like a whole lot of Christians nowadays. To be devoted to Christ, in this case, and disregard your own interest. Most people are, have a, a, relationship based, a relationship with Christ based on what makes them feel the best. That's about one's own interest. If we're going to be bondservants of Christ, then we are going to be actually slaves to him by choice, devoted to him to the degree that we are not even interested in our own and ourselves. We have to die to self, right? Isn't that what the scripture says? So that's what we must do. The third thing that we talked about was Revelation is filled with symbolism all through it. It's not a, a book that you can just take at face value interpretation, literal interpretation. It's not even written many times in chronological order, time frame. You start here and every one of these things are in order. There are certain places where it goes way back and way forward and it's just, it can leave people confused. So the best thing to do is to, to find out what the symbol stands for and then in terms of literal literal interpretation, believe it literally, okay? Um, so the focus is Jesus. The function is to reveal the future to his bondservants. And then the third thing is the fruit. There's a fruit to studying the book of Revelation. Well, I better rephrase that. There's not a fruit so much to studying the book of Revelation as much as there is those that read it and take heed to it. See, you can study something and not follow it. So there's a fruit that comes from this study. If you will, you will take it, and, and, and now I'm going to pray that prayer. May the Lord open our ears to hear what he would say. And may he open our minds to understand everything that's said. And may he open our hearts to receive it. When we'll take, when we'll take it, read it, and take heed to it, there's tremendous blessings that come to our life. Now, I don't know what those blessings are. I don't need to know. If God's sending me blessings, bring it on. Right? Right. So tonight we're going to read uh, some more of Revelation, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, chapter 1. So if you'll turn your Bible with me to Revelation chapter 1, and uh, I'm going to read all that chapter, and I'm going to read the first seven verses of chapter 2, and then we're going to... Um, we're going to dig. This is going to be very much, I think there's a lot of topics in Revelation that are 
are worthy of preaching. And then there's a lot of topics in the book of Revelation that are more worthy of teaching. And so this will uh, have a lot of teaching to it tonight. And so uh, uh, I'll, I'll do my best to keep it simple. Right on? Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Say, soon take place. (laughs) Sooner now than you think. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Say, the time is near. It goes on, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Praise God. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. <clears throat> I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me, a loud voice like, a, like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamon and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the, how many know this is all symbolism right here? And I'm not going to dig too deep into this because I want to get into uh, us taking a look at the seven churches. Uh, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Verse 13. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash, and his head. And his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are 
and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There's some theological uh, conversation about what does it really mean by angels. There's a certain group of, in theology that would say that's probably the pastors, but another uh, beautiful picture is that every church has an angel. That's pretty cool to think about that. Be like, okay, I want to meet the angel of Resurrection Life Church, St. Louis, right on, right? So, uh, yeah, and we're not really, it's, it's neither here nor there in this study right now for us to determine what those angels are. Are they human pastors or are they angelic beings? Uh, then we start with chapter 2, and I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then we're going to begin to break things down. Right on? To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, say this, says this, excuse me, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you have found them to be false and you have, perse you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. How I many know that's something we don't want to hear from God, right? Whether on an individual level or whether on a corporate level as a church. I don't want to, I don't want to hear God say, but I got some stuff against you. How I many know it's not good to have God against you? <laughs> it doesn't work. You may as well just give in. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else. How many know that there's something else you don't want to ever hear God say to you? Or else. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now that's a hard one to reconcile because God is love, so how can God hate? And yet the Old Testament teaches us that, are, that there are six things, yes, seven things that the Lord hates, and there's a list of things. Verse seven, he who has an, hear, he who has an ear, that's singular, that means you only have to have one ear. Uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Where was the tree of life to begin with? The Garden of Eden, right? Pretty powerful. Um, in verse 11 there, it said, write in the book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Interestingly, by that time in history when this was actually written, there were potentially hundreds of different churches meeting in house, house, house churches. That was the way that they, they did things at that time. There, 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 some say even maybe a thousand or more that there were, and yet out of them all, Jesus picked seven. 
Now, we often have read that passage of Scripture and go, well, there was only seven churches. No, history shows there was easily hundreds of different churches, but Jesus picked seven, identifying them in a specific order. He started with Ephesus. He ended with Laodicea. They are in order on purpose, and we're going to take a look at that. Verse 19 gives us some insight into the depth of some of the meanings of the seven churches that Jesus identified. In other words, Paul, or excuse me, uh, Christ instructed John, write the things which you have seen, that's past tense, and the things which are, that's present tense, and the things which will take place after these things, that's future tense. So what we get here is we get a, a broad picture of the church. These letters were written for those churches then, and they are written for us today. There's something for us to learn from these writings here today. Uh, you know, have seen refers to the events that had already been covered in this book. The things which are refers to the church age that was the first century church where John uh, the Revelator was on the Isle of Patmos in, in, uh, imprisoned. And then will take place is the church after that church age all the way up to the present. So we are involved in this. Why should we study, excuse me, why should we study the seven churches? Well, keep in mind that this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? And then we have the words in red, and the first words written weren't about, you know, scorpions coming from the earth and, 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 and uh, the rapture and the great bowls of wrath. He gave a a picture of seven different churches, and these seven different churches uh, had certain things that, w that God was okay with, and they had certain things that God was not okay with, and why should we study the seven churches? So we can truly be prepared for the Lord's coming, right? I, I not only want to hear him say to me, Rick Lopez, well done, thou good and faithful servant, I'd love to have him, hear him say, about Resurrection Life Church, well done, thou good and faithful church. Right on? So we can learn something from here, from these, these uh, assessments. They're really assessments, evaluations that God is, uh, Christ is giving these churches. We can learn things we don't want to do, and we can learn things that we ought to do. And we need to take a closer look at ourselves as a church in order to be able to say, wow, that's an honest assessment of me and I don't like it. Or that's an honest assessment of our church, and praise God. Um, so this is a description of the seven churches. This is a picture of the church at the present time and in the future as well. No one, how many know that no one can assess and evaluate the church better than Jesus himself? Dr. Jesus, uh, the one who created the church, can be the best one <coughs> to give the church its annual evaluation. <laughs> Right on, we all dread those things at work, right? Uh, in the second and third chapters, the Lord Jesus gives each of the seven churches, literal churches, an x-ray. He takes a look at their true spiritual condition. And throughout this study tonight, as we look at the, the church of Ephesus, I want to keep this, this question in mind. If the Lord took an x-ray of Resurrection Life Church, what would its spiritual condition be? That's, an, that's, 
That's an honest and powerful question that, quite frankly, a lot of churches aren't necessarily willing to answer or ask because they're very satisfied with what they're doing, and heaven forbid we change anything. Right on? Um, now, let me, I'm trying to do this, and I don't want to get too deep into theology, but theologically, there's a threefold application to the examination of the seven churches. The first one is a contemporary application. In other words, it was meant for the church that it was written about at that time. That's the contemporary application. Then there's a composite application. The composite application means that, that all seven churches are for all churches, all times. These seven letters are for all churches in all time. They apply directly to us here at Res Life in 2020 as much as they did to the first century church all the way back then. If that be so, why don't we talk about the seven churches more often? Why do we avoid that particular subject? Then there's a chronological application, and, and really, if we look at these churches, we can see a panoramic view of church history from John's time all the way up to the present. For example, snapshot of the history of the church through the letters. Ephesus, known as the careless church. It existed from uh, A.D. 30 to about 100, A.D. 100. Uh, Smyrna, the persecuted church, it existed A.D. 100 to 300. Well, I shouldn't say it existed during that time. It speaks of the church during that era, okay? Pergamum, the compromising church, row, A.D. 300 to 500. Thyatira was the corrupt church. Oh, my gosh. Lord, please, don't find any symptoms of compromise or corruption here. In Jesus' name. But the corrupt church was A.D. 500 to 1500, which is also known historically as the Dark Ages. Sardis was known as the crippled church. Whew. A.D. 1500 to 1700. Philadelphia was known as the consistent church. I think if I'm not mistaken, Philadelphia is the only one that got nothing but a good assessment. And that was uh, 1700 through 1900. And now you might think, where are we? Well, we're in that last one, the lukewarm church. That's Laodicea is the lukewarm church, which was from 1900 to this present day. And if there was ever a day where the church, I don't even want, I don't want to say by and large, but in many respects, the church is a lukewarm church. There are few churches out there that will preach on sin, preach on repentance, preach on conviction, hold the people accountable to a lifestyle of godliness and holiness. And they have been lukewarm. They've only been hot in terms of the show. The show. Hired musicians in many cases with smoke and lights and everything else to entertain the flesh. Let's capture them by entertaining the flesh. Maybe we get a chance to squeak into their spirit somehow. I mean, no, that's just the wrong approach altogether. So we are in the era of the lukewarm church. And, it, and I will admit, it's a hard pill to swallow to think that you and I live in the age of the lukewarm church. 
If we're going to be the church that Christ wants us to be, then I believe that we need to closely examine who we are as individuals and who we are as a church. We need to have an assessment of these things. We need to be diligent in looking at those things and be diligent not to let the negative things be a part of that which is, we're identified with. And so that's why looking at this is important uh, and, and, and why. So we can learn not to repeat them. <laughs> why would we want to repeat the same things that Jesus, when he gave an assessment of these churches, says, I got this problem with y'all. Not good. We need to, have, uh, we need to do our utmost, uh, I believe, to, to have the characteristics and the traits that Jesus commended. And by and large, he commended, I believe, everyone in some degree. So then we need to look at those specific degrees and go, may that be a characteristic and trait of our church. You and I are not responsible for the church whole, the whole church, all over the county, all over the world. But you and I are responsible for this place right here that we call our church home. And we are responsible, I am specifically responsible to do my best to teach you all, to prepare you for the coming of the Lord so that none of you are caught off guard and you're ready and you're also able to look at yourself individually and look at our church corporately and, and see the things, assess the things that the Lord would find commendable and the things he might find condemnable. Right on? 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. So it's not an unusual thing for us to say we need to have some self-evaluation individually, and I think we ought to have an evaluation as a church. We need to regularly check ourselves, give ourselves a heart check, give ourselves a spirit check, and give ourselves an attitude check. Some of us need a check up from the neck up right? need an attitude adjustment. And as I said, I don't believe that there are many churches that are willing to truly do this spiritually. There are churches that will pay big bucks to have an assessment team come in to assess their church as a whole, but that's very often not a spiritual assessment, a heart assessment. It's just an assessment of activities. And that's one of the problems with the uh, the church at Ephesus, they were busy about the activities but had forgotten their devotion to the one they were active for. So how, we're going to do our best. We're going to take an evaluation. I'm going to evaluate our church. I'm going to evaluate myself. I'm not going to evaluate you. That's between you and God. I'm not a fruit inspector, okay? You know, you know when you buy a new shirt or something, you pull out, it's got a little tag, it says fruit inspector number 28 or something like that not a fruit inspector. I don't have a badge that says I'm here to inspect the fruit of the people. No, I'm just supposed to equip you to have fruit and to bear fruit. How that happens between you and God. Can you say amen? Amen. amen. All right, let's get into a conversation now about the church of Ephesus in particular. And I don't even think we'll finish the whole conversation about Ephesus because there's so much here. I want to read it again. Revelation chapter 2 verse 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil 
and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. I believe that's not only an individual thing, I believe that's a corporate thing as well. Yet this you do have. So once again, I think we got what's called commonly sometimes in leadership as a praise sandwich. It's a praise sandwich. He gives you all these good things he likes, and then in the middle, here's the things he don't like, and then he follows it up with some things he likes. It's called praise sandwich. And no one does it as well as Christ. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And we're going to have to take a look at the Nicolaitans. Because if that's something that God says, I hate, then how many know that any of the attributes or traits of the Nicolaitans, we don't want to have those as characteristics, attributes, or traits. What am I doing? I'm preparing you for the coming of the Lord. That's what this is all about. Well, well, Pastor, you're not talking about end times. Excuse me, I'm in the premier end times book where Jesus talked about this. We want to hear about the rapture. Well, just hang on to your britches. We will more than likely get there. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, as we look at these churches in uh, the seven churches, we have to look at the city or where they are at, because where they are at, And some history or some snapshot views of the city that they're in tells us a little bit about not only the church, but the things that the church had to go through and endure through. So it's important to kind of get a snapshot of the city of Ephesus as well. Remember one of the beautiful parts of Jesus' praise sandwiches, he says up there, uh, you have perseverance, and then he goes down again and he says, you have perseverance and have endured. He doubled up on that one. Oh, brothers and sisters, I can't tell you the number of times I've watched people just quit enduring, quit persevering. A lot of times one little thing in church makes them mad, uh, and they're gone. And many times what happens to people that that, that happens to is either they, they, they may find another church, but it never matches up to the love they had of their previous church, so they church hop and shop. Or there's others that settle down in a church they really know that they're not called to, but they're too mad to come back. Or they never, ever go to church again. we got to have some endurance. But I get ahead of myself. Snapshot of the city of Ephesus. It was the greatest harbor city in all of Asia. Now, if you think about a harbor city... In America, what's the greatest harbor city in all of America... New York? How about on the West Coast? Huh? San Francisco? Yeah. Or Los Angeles or something. San Francisco. So now I want you to think about these harbors. This is a harbor, the greatest harbor city in all of Asia. Okay. We got to get, we got to put this together. Uh, Many of us would probably call New York and San Francisco the most liberal cities in all of America. 
right? Okay, so the most liberal city in all of Asia. It was known as the gateway of Asia. Everybody that came through to Asia or all that whole area, it encompassed many different cities. Uh, they had to go through Ephesus. In fact, it was, it was spoken that any Roman leader that came to the area was required by Roman law to enter through Ephesus. It was also the wealthiest city in all of Asia. It was the center of worship for the goddess Diana. In fact, they had a temple to Artemis uh, that was one of the seven wonders of the Asian church at the time. In Ephesus, pagan worship was at its strongest. Now, I want you to think about, the reason I'm sharing this with you is because I want you to have a, a picture of what this, where this church had to live, what it had to go through. It would like, it, it's like trying to be a Holy Ghost church and combining San Francisco and New York into one place and saying, that's where we're going to go confess the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not easy. Uh, it was not, a notorious center of pagan superstition. So not only did, I mean, everything for them was about idol worship and the, and the pagan gods. Numbers, uh, my seventh point, it has been said that a more unpromising soil for the sowing of the seed of Christianity can scarcely be imagined. But listen, and yet it was there that Christianity has some of its greatest triumphs. The Apostle Paul stayed longer in Ephesus than he did in any other city in the Bible. Timothy, the Apostle Paul's spiritual son, was the first pastor and bishop of the city of Ephesus. Historians say that there can be few places that better prove the conquering power of Christian faith. So even though we've kind of given this analogy that Ephesus is like combining California and New York you know, in a liberal, what we would call today a liberal point of view, the greatest strengths and miracles of Christianity took place through Ephesus. That's, that's pretty profound. So in verse 2, the Lord begins his evaluation. And he's telling them, as I said, what they're doing right. He starts off by saying what I'm doing right. And he goes, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostle, and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. So the first thing Jesus did was he, he, he commended their toil. Now there's a word we don't use every day. How was your toil today at the factory? You know, we don't, that's not a word we use. But it's very interesting usage of the word in the Greek because it describes the kind of work that takes everything of mind and muscle that a person can put into it to get it done. That's what that word in the Greek means. So when the Lord says, I have seen your toil, I have seen the work that you've had to put all of your mind and your heart and your muscle and every part of your energy to accomplish, and you've persevered, and you've endured, What's, what's it saying? We shouldn't be afraid to break a sweat for Jesus. You know, I mean, granted, we had a great response on Sunday when I 
what I believe was an emotional anointed message about children and children's ministry, and a number of people responded. They, many of them took uh, Minister of Help's applications. We pray that they all come back in. But you know what? If we're going to be the church, well, let me back up. We gave a plea one Sunday for Father's House Ministry. Remember? And I, and I, okay, I'm not trying to be hard on you, but if Christ is going to assess us and I have to assess us, then we better take an honest look at ourselves, right? That's what this is all about. And so I made a plea for Father's House Ministry, cleaning ministry. And at the time, I think we went maybe two weeks before anybody signed up. And then finally two people signed up. That, what's that say about Resurrection Life Church? In the grand scheme of things, we don't have a lot of people that are willing to sweat for Jesus. Cricket, 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 cricket. Maybe that's something we ought to consider a little bit more. We shouldn't be afraid to break a sweat for Jesus. We are supposed to be toilers for Jesus. To, th to throw our whole heart into it, to throw our whole mind into it, to throw all the muscle we got into the work of Jesus. We'll do it, at, we'll do it for the, 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 the factory, because you get a paycheck. You'll come home dead dog tired and go back again the next day and do it again. Take the overtime when you can get the overtime. But heaven forbid you do something at the church. Now, I know this is the, this is the holy crew. You're the holy crew. And I'm just preaching to the choir right now. That's sarcasm in case you don't know. D.L. Moody said this statement. It's a really cool statement. He said, I get weary in the Lord's work, but I never get weary of the Lord's work. I'd rather leave the church worn out any day of the week than to leave my wood shop worn out. You should be more, we should be. Res life! Because that's what we're, this is the assessment. This is the mirror. We're looking at Ephesus and going, what's in Ephesus that Christ likes? Let's make sure we got it here. What's in Ephesus that Christ doesn't like? Let's make sure we don't have it here. That's how this panorama works. And it's in the book of Revelation. So we are studying Revelation. And so my, and I know that the that your stuff that's happening during the season of of, of uh, COVID in 2020. I had a conversation with a group of pastors, and the question that was brought up was, "Are all of you having difficulties as we are getting people to serve? All the churches are having issues, especially." As much to their surprise, as is much to my surprise, some of the most faithful who have always served don't even show up, don't attend church anymore. No offense to anyone, y'all. No shaming. Just stating a fact of a conversation. And at the time, and I, did, I had gave a poor assessment. I gave a poor assessment of us. I said, you know, I don't think I'm facing that. I think it's going pretty good. And then I did Father's House thing. <laughs> I was like, oh dear, I guess it's not going very good for us. So uh, I get, D.L. Moody says, I get weary in the Lord's work, but I never get weary of the Lord's work. Oh, Lord, that we could have that heart. Anoint us with that, Lord, that we are okay with getting weary in the work, but never weary of the work. And may we, may we be willing to sweat for Jesus. Amen. Uh, the second thing Jesus commends them after toil 
He commends them for their perseverance and their endurance. And again, we have another interesting Greek word. Um, Sometimes we may look at endurance with like this grim patience. You know, grit your teeth and bear it and just get through it kind of thing, right? That's, That's sometimes the idea of persevering. It must be bad if I'm having to persevere. So I'll just grip my teeth and dig my heels in and somehow... I'll make it. But that's not what this word, this word is talking about courageous patience. In fact, gallant, courageous patience in the face of hardship, in the face of trial, in the face of difficulty, and to do it with grace and to do it with joy. The Lord says, I know your toil. And I'm t- I mean, work that requires all your muscle and all your mind to do. And I know your patience, not just gritting your teeth and bearing it, but going through the hardest of times with grace and with joy. I think as a corporation, Res Life has done that. We have gone through some serious times, and we have done it with grace and with joy, Brother Chuck. I don't think that at any time that this church just gritted its teeth and bore it and went forward. But what is the church corporate made of? People, individuals. Have we as individuals, because remember this is an assessment both individually and we individuals make up the church and the church corporate, which is Resurrection Life Church in St. Louis. Can we say that as individuals, that we put our hand to the plow of ministry the work of ministry with all our muscle, with all our, with all our mind, sweat for Jesus. And do we endure hardship with grace and with joy? Yeah, that's something to think on, isn't it? Something to ponder. Something to ponder. So, so far, Jesus has given the church at Ephesus two commendations. He said, break a sweat for Jesus. I'm just paraphrasing, but break a sweat for Jesus and have joyful patience in the face of hardship. Has 2020 had any hardship? Don't don't raise your hands. How many of you are gritting your teeth and bearing it? Don't raise your hands. But in your mind, you're thinking, oh, dear. How many of you have gone through 2020 with grace and with joy? Think about it. And I'm not perfect, but you know what? I thank God for the anointing that he's put on my life because throughout all of 2020, and people have asked me how I'm doing, I said, oh my gosh, I'm more invigorated and excited than I've ever been because I have to think differently. I have to operate differently. The Lord is uh, allowing me to have time to think about things and do things that I didn't have time to think about and didn't have time to do before. And it's been one of the most vibrant 10 months in my whole history as a pastor for 20 plus years that's just by the grace of God y'all by the grace of God so the Jesus goes on and now he commends them for testing and not tolerating really if you want to boil this down false teachers he says here um, and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and they have been found to be false so this is talking about false teachers maybe even wolves in the camp Uh uh-oh 
This is important. Acts chapter 20, verse 29. And in fact, this particular passage of Scripture in Acts 20, 29 is a part of Paul's farewell letter, guess to who? The church at Ephesus. And he warned them about this, and he said, I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. We find similar warnings throughout the New Testament. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, these will show up. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Romans 16, 17 through 18. Now I urge you, brethren, note those, I think the King James says mark those, but in the New King James it says, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but they serve their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Wow. Now, I will say, I want to say this humbly. I am, I, in, in Jesus' name, Lord, I don't want to be bravado bragging in any way. So, Lord, let me, let me deliver this with humility. I recognize that I have a, one of the responsibilities that I have as a pastor is to guard. Lead, guide, lead, feed, and guard. Guide, feed, and guard. Three main things. Guard from what? Guard you from wolves. The analogy of Christians and the church being likened to sheep is replete through the Bible. And what do you have? We also recognize he's going to have a day when he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. Look at your neighbor and say, hope you're not a goat. Now, not only do you have sheep, sheep are interestingly, the dumbest animal that God ever created. No offense to any of us sheep. Do you know that they're, to my knowledge, my study, they're the only animal God created that have no homing device, have no ability to make it back into the gate of their sheepfold without the shepherd to lead them there? Did you know that sheep, if not moved to a greener pasture, will destroy the field they're in by eating every bit of grass that's there? There's nothing left unless the shepherd moves them to greener pasture. Did you know that sheep will not drink water from a moving brook? By still waters, greener pastures. Do you know that sheep have a commodity that they give the shepherd? Wool. Right? You ever watch a sheep that's just laden down with thick wool? They're lumbering around because they can barely move, and burrs are caught in that wool, and weeds are caught in that wool, and dirt's caught in that wool. They lay quietly while the shepherd lays them down and shears. There's an analogy. How many of you love to be sheared by your pastor? <laughs> sheared. To pull the, have you ever seen a sheep right after it's been sheared? They're jumping and frolicking and free. So yeah, there's times when you and I need to be sheared 
Because we've got so much of the world stuck to us that we're lumbering around as Christians, and we need a shepherd in our life. Every sheepfold has a goat. And nowhere are we told to get rid of the goats. We'd like to get rid of the goats because they're troublemakers. But it's Jesus who will separate the goats from the sheep because the goats actually bring a commodity as well. Anybody know what the goats bring? Milk, cheese, dairy, yeah, goat milk. I love goat cheese. But here's goats. Keep the analogy in mind. Get out of the animal kingdom and just get into the church kingdom for a minute. Goats will eat anything. Eat anything. Tin cans, garbage. Goats like to be on higher places. They'll stand up on the tops of the little coops or whatever they're called. Look down on everything else. Goats always jump the fence. And then, unfortunately, come back. (laughs) Yeah. But the goats are important. Nowhere does the Lord say, get the goats out. No, no, no. But he didn't say feed the goats. He said feed the sheep. There's always something else that, that you'll, if you'll think about a picture, what's one of the other things that you always see when you see sheeps and the shepherd? What's the other thing that you often see when you look at the nature shows? A sheepdog, thank you. A guard dog. That's right. There's, and what does the guard dog do? Helps keep the sheep together and helps keep the sheep close to the shepherd. And what's the analogy there? Well, maybe like elders in the church. Spiritual leaders that are to help keep the flock together. Then there's something else that we're warned about with the sheepfold. What is that? Wolves. Just saying, what does a shepherd do to the wolf? Kills it. (laughs) That's right. Kills the wolf. Now, that don't mean that we're murdering a human being, but the Bible teaches us clearly to mark those that cause division among you and avoid them. Two times while pastoring up in West Branch, this is the part where I don't want this to seem like I'm bragging because I'm, I'm sorry that I have to tell that, that I have this story to tell. We had a wolf show up at our church. Now, how do you know a wolf? A wolf is somebody who begins to decimate the sheep, to, sh- to kill the sheep, to separate the sheep from the flock. And when you begin to see sheep in your church that are now missing, you have to go, why are they missing? What's going on? What's happened to them? And in two cases up north in the 13 years I was there, there was a wolf in sheep's clothing that showed up at our church. In one occasion, it was a couple who showed up and I actually knew something was wrong. They showed up in suits and just was really dressed up and immediately started greeting at our door right after walking in our door for the very first time. Now, I was only a year old as a pastor. Give me a break. I was just an infant. But I knew something was wrong. And we watched them and watched them. Whenever, whenever we would... When the congregation would have their arms lifted in the air and singing and celebrating, they'd be on their knees moaning and crying. If the, if the Lord moved in such a way that people were in the altars crying before the Lord, they'd be clapping and shouting. And we 
pretty much met with them and escorted them. You, you have to leave. But what we did then, that they went to another church and did the same thing. Then they went to another church and did the same thing. They even posted posters at the grocery stores and stuff that Resurrection, well, it was New Life Christian Church, hates children. So they were decimating the flock. And a bunch of us pastors got together because we, I have a close relationship with pastors here and I had it there and we all made an agreement on a specific Sunday morning that we were going to expose that couple by name to the congregation. And we did that together and we never heard from this couple ever again. Again, I'm not proud that I have these stories to tell, so I'm not telling them to go, ooh, ain't I strong, no. We had another time, our youth ministry up there, this one is a little more severe. We had, because of who she was decimating, we had a youth ministry, it was a church of 125 people, and we had 100 teenagers coming to our youth ministry every week. We bust them in. There was a specific family, specifically a lady, from a certain city nearby West Branch that brought teenagers by the masses, so much so that we had to go get a bus and bus all these kids in from this particular city. And she was constantly wanting a position of leadership, but I knew that she was not qualified to be a leader, and I never gave her a position of leadership. Ultimately, she got angry with me because I would not give her a position of leadership and began to spread lies about the church and about me as a pastor, guess to who? All those teenagers and their parents. I know. It broke my heart. I stood up in the church and I exposed this person by name. She was a member of our church. I exposed her by name as a wolf in sheep's clothing. And I said, if she, I am marking her for you to avoid her. If she shows up in this church, I will identify her in her presence here in the congregation. Now, I'm not saying that to be braggadocious. How many pastors are willing to take that risk? I, have, I, I haven't experienced it. My job is to guard the sheepfold. And Jesus said, here's a problem. There are wolves in sheep's clothing that are ravenous and savage and want to destroy the sheep. But one of the commendations that, God, that Christ gave to the church at Ephesus was, you see what's going on and you test those things and you don't allow it because you know that they're false. A shortcoming of many Christians today that, and no offense, y'all, no offense, please, they're like sheep, because we are. We, that's the example of who we are in Scripture, sheep, right? And we will listen to just about anything and believe it, even over the Word of God. Or we will try to make it match the Word of God so that we can believe it. We'll swallow just about anything, and we have to be cautious to what we're listening to. We have to be cautious to who we're listening to. You need to be cautious about who you're giving to, who you're sowing money to. You cannot take it for granted that just because somebody was spot on 20 years ago that they're still spot on today. You better take a closer look. Again, I'm not going back into the message I did a number of weeks ago where I would not give any names, and I still won't give any names. I can't tell you the number of people who go, come on, tell us who it is. Like, no, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to be accused of slander. 
more than once the New Testament insists on the, I better quit here pretty soon. Let me see where I'm at in this. Yeah, we're, we're almost to the end. Give me four more minutes. No, I'm not. I'm, you give me five. Okay, time me. Let's see if I can get her done in five minutes. Okay? Uh, in 1 John, uh, there's many scriptures in the New Testament that speak to this. In 1 John, and that's about testing. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits <coughs> Excuse me, to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21 says, Test all things and hold fast to that which is good. About the best analogy I can give you that is chicken. You might be thinking, that guy talks about chicken all the time. I ain't never ate a chicken bone, but they're good meat on them bones. You hold fast to that which is good. You throw out that which is bad. The hold fast there is to grip like a wrestler would pin someone to the ground. Hold fast. And then Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 through 20. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Who would that be? Somebody that shows up in the church looking like every other sheep. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, and this is the hardest of all, you will know them by their fruits." So the, uh, the church at Ephesus had faithfully done this. They worked by the sweat of their brow and probably had sore muscles every time they got done working at the church. They endured great hardship in a really liberal, ungodly city. And they did it with grace, and they did it with joy. And they had a process by which they applied testing to those that came in. And they were able to weed out misguided false teachers, or as the Scripture says, they're evil men. Unfortunately, something got lost in their process of doing things right. They, they were doing things right, but they forgot why they were doing it. Oh, that's a biggie, y'all. We can take a look at Rez's life and go, we're doing a lot of things right, but do we know why we're doing it, and do we know whom we're doing it for? Of course, Revelation 2.4, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. We will dig deeper into that, um, into the remainder of this letter next week when we get together. For now, a quick review of the kind of church that Jesus would say, well done, good and faithful servants.
willing to break a sweat, working hard for Jesus. Every single one of us can do something. Every single one of us, every single one of you can do something in the kingdom and in the work of the ministry at your church. Number two, endure trouble, endure hardship, and don't just grit your teeth and bear it like 2020. Go through it with grace and joy. Try to find a way to have it be the most invigorating trial of your life. Imagine that. And then number three, test and avoid false, teach, false teachers. And I added to that because I think scripturally it gives us when it says to mark those that cause division, dividers. Now I have had to deal with it here since I've, since I've been here in eight years, but I have not had to deal with it publicly because my dealing with it, I always deal with it privately first. If they don't listen to that private, then I will expose someone publicly. I'm not proud of that. I pray that I never, ever, ever have to do that again. And thus far in eight years, I haven't had to do it here. And we have had, we have had some wolves. We have had some wolves. So, I posed a question to you all early on. Do you remember what it was? If Christ gave us an x-ray of our spiritual condition, what would it show? I want you to take that with you this week. Because the church isn't just what happens right here. Church literally, literally starts in the heart of fathers at home. Or if, if it's a single mom, the single mom at home. And it starts with a fire there. They bring that to the church. And then the church catches on fire. And when the church catches on fire, the community combusts. So I want you to go home and as a family, as an individual, if Christ were to do an x-ray of your spiritual condition, what would it show? Well, it's a great time to give you the numbers blessing, isn't it? All right, well, there you have it. We'll get back to it again next Wednesday. I've had a good time bringing this to you, and um, we're going to take our time through the seven churches and uh, try to teach you as much as we can learn together. Amen? Hallelujah. Would you stand with me? I want to remind you, pray for Kaya, six-year-old Kaya, leukemia. Please, every day, pray for her. I hope that you're still doing the 12 o'clock alarm. Okay, good. Remember that we are cursing COVID to die. We curse the demonic activity that's trying to disrupt the world. We pray for every single human being that's been affected in some way, shape, or manner by COVID. Right? 12 o'clock. Yeah. Why don't you talk to me after church about it? Okay. Thank you. Okay. Okay, we'll go ahead then. Come here. Come here. Come up here. Are you a sheep or a goat? No, I'm just... <laughs> I know what she is. 
All right, give I, us a suggestion. I, Make it brief. Yes, it's very brief. When you're going through chemotherapy, there's certain responses that your body can do. My son had leukemia when he was 18. So you want to pray specifically that she is an early responder. Ooh. Be specific with that because if she's an early responder, that'll be. Thank you. Very good. That was awesome. You may get called on again. <laughs> pray that she is an early responder to the treatment. Thank you, Shanda. That was awesome. Well, Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to dig into it, to get it and get it into our heart and to become like it. We ask for your grace upon Larry and Nancy, the loss of their mom. We pray for Kaya that, uh, as, as was just suggested to us, that she be an early responder to the medication that she be healed of this and never have to face it again. I speak health and life over each and every person. In the name of Jesus, amen and amen. God bless you. We'll see you on Sunday.